Welcome to the New Books Network. We are joined on this episode of a New Books Network podcast with Lee Campbell-Hale, author of Remembering Ludlow But Forgetting the Columbine, the 1927 to 1928 Colorado Coal Strike. Professor Campbell-Hale is a lecturer at the University of Colorado, Denver, where she's been teaching at since 2018. And before that, Lee was an assistant professor for two years at Northeastern State University in Oklahoma. Dr. Campbell-Hale graduated with a master's in 2005 and a PhD in 2013 with U.S. history and a concentration in labor history from the University of Colorado at Boulder. And before that, she taught social studies. Her first year teaching social studies was in 1978 in secondary schools, mostly AP and IB classes at Fairview High School in Boulder, Colorado. That's the last school that she worked at before retiring in 2016. Dr. Campbell-Hill, give your audience more insight into your academic experience and why they should read your book, Remembering Ludlow But Forgetting the Columbine. Well, first, I want to thank you, Nathan, for having me here to talk about this book, which has truly, uh, you know, taken up about a third of my life, you know, a whole lot more than I really should should be talking about here. Um, as your introduction made clear, most of my life I taught social studies in public schools. Um, you know, I started in 1978 teaching eighth grade U.S. history in uh, Salem Springs, Arkansas, taught in a, in a uh, private school out in Berkeley, California. Uh, I taught middle school in Boulder. And then when I retired, I, I was teaching at Fairview High School in uh, Boulder. And all those years, I was a member of the National Education Association, um, which, you know, has smaller uh, uh groups like, you know, Colorado Education Association, Boulder Valley Education Association, and they negotiated contracts for teachers. And most teacher contracts, your, your pay is linked to how many years you've taught and your education level. Well, most of the time I was teaching, you know, I was just too broke. Uh, my husband and I were too broke with three kids to go back to school. Um, by the time I ended up teaching at Fairview in Boulder, I realized, you know, I hadn't gotten a raise in eight years. And it was like, man, it is time to go back to school. And I didn't want to get a degree in education. And since I was a history teacher and I love history, uh, I found that the University of Colorado at Boulder was very welcoming to me. And I went back and, you know, at first got my master's in history and then my PhD in history. But I think with my background, I am uniquely qualified to write a book that is not just sort of strictly a uh, an historical monograph, you know, about a a, a a small strike, which which in you know in historical terms, the 1927-28 Colorado coal strike is a small strike; it's an unknown strike. And most historical monographs, you know, would just sort of dig into that and add another, you know, brick to the intellectual wall. Uh, of, of, of knowledge, but with my many years of teaching, uh, you know, students all the way from sixth grade to seniors in college, I kind of understand how students think and how they think about history. So what I wanted to do was use this small strike to tell a bigger story about history and to place that strike in, a, in the, the national uh, United States context, also the bigger labor con- context, and also to show, uh, to explicate as I write, how history is made 
and how that involves both uh, uh, remembering and sometimes examining what's been forgotten, you know, what's been left out of uh, dominant historical narratives, which I uh, define as being most textbooks that are used to teach U.S. history. And the 1927 to 1928 Colorado coal strike, what brought you to that moment in time? What brought me to it was, uh, you know, I was I was searching around for a topic uh, to write about. And like most historians, I was initially, I, I'm interested in coal mining uh, because my dad and my grandfathers were coal miners um, in Paris, you know, be, be, be Arkansas, Paris, Arkansas. Um, and so I'd, I'd grown up hearing stories about coal and coal mining. And I currently live in Lafayette, Colorado, which is an old coal mining town. This whole, this whole part of Colorado is, is, uh, is had 250 coal mines in it, um, you know, a hundred years ago. So I, you know, we are literally in this town sitting right on top of coal mines. And that means that we're sitting right on top of, of sources, uh, you know, historical sources about, uh, coal mining. And so I was interested in it because I knew that there were a lot of records here, but yet almost all the history that's been written about Colorado coal mining has focused on that, uh, violent 1913-14 phase of that coal strike that produced the uh, April 20th, 1914 Ludlow Massacre. And so while there's been quite a bit of historical interest in the Ludlow Massacre, you just couldn't find anything about this particular strike. And so when I looked into it, um, there were a lot of things that initially attracted me to it. Um, The woman uh, who owned the Rocky Mountain Fuel Company, which is, uh, th- there was a, there, well, let me back up a bit. There, there was a, uh, a Columbine massacre, you know, not the one that happened at Columbine High School in 1999, but on November 21st, 1927, there was a coal strike going on and state police shot and killed six uh, striking coal miners and probably wounded about 60 more. And I wondered why is it that nobody knew about this Columbine massacre and that nobody knew about the strike. And when I dug into a little bit, I found out that the woman who owned the coal company where this Columbine massacre took place uh, at the Rocky Mountain Fuel Company, her name was Josephine Roach. And she may have been the only woman to have ever owned a coal company in the United States. So I was interested in that, but I was also interested in it because um, the, 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 the group leading the strike was the industrial workers of the world, the Wobblies. And, you know, having taught U.S. history for, you know, most of my life, almost every textbook said, well, the Wobblies died out because of their intense persecution in World War One." And so my question was, you know, if the Wobblies were dead, how did they lead the most successful strike in Colorado history that we've never heard of? Uh, so I wanted to know more about Josephine Roach. I wanted to know more about uh, the Wobblies. And I also wanted to understand how the bigger picture of the strike fit into the overall narrative of U.S. history and labor history, since it hadn't been written about. In what ways is the Colorado coal enigma similar to coal in Pennsylvania or Alabama? We had Mitch Troutman on one of our episodes where he educated us about the bootleg coal rebellion. 
how does your book maybe relate to bootleg coal if it does at all? I I listened to that interview and it was a really interesting topic. I I he you know is a, is a local guy who has an interest in his story, and he made it pretty clear that most of the bootleg coal was in the anthracite. Uh, was an anthracite coal because uh, it, it really couldn't work with bituminous coal. So uh, Pennsylvania has anthracite coal. Colorado doesn't really. Um, and in fact, there's different grades of bituminous coal that were mined in Colorado. Uh, the coal that was mined up in, in the area around Denver uh, was a kind of bituminous coal called lignite. So it was even uh, more uh, unstable than regular bituminous coal, which was a higher quality down at uh, John D. Rockefeller's Colorado Fuel and Iron, which was based in uh, southeast Colorado. Uh, you know, and and there his was the biggest coal company in the state. His was the one that is usually associated with that uh, long strike in the in the Ludlow massacre. So there, while there are similarities uh, in in coal all over the United States. Coal histories are uh, often unique because uh, they're often intended for local markets, you know, uh, not always. I mean, there were all kinds of conflicts about what coal got sent where. Uh, but Pennsylvania had both uh, bituminous and uh, anthracite. And then uh, Alabama, which actually appears in my book, um, the, the coal there, you know, most of that was used to feed the uh, steel mills in Birmingham, you know, the uh, industrial capital of the South. And in the South, in, in Alabama, you had a, a, a lot of black coal miners, but they weren't always mining coal voluntarily. You know, like there's a, a really great book out there um, called, uh, I think it's called Worse Than Slavery. Nope. Yeah. Slavery by Another Name. Uh, by Douglas Blackman. And uh, in this book, he talks about the post-Civil War reliance on contract uh, labor, or or essentially, uh, you know, uh, arresting Blacks on vagrancy charges and and treating them basically like slaves to go down in the the coal mines and mine coal in Alabama, which is a different story than in Pennsylvania, um, where starting, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, most of the coal miners there were first-generation immigrants. And, of course, you're not going to have immigrants in Alabama because you've got uh, blacks working as, as the cheap labor there. So it, a lot of it depends on who your, who your workers are, what kind of coal you have, what your markets are. Um, but the, the commonality is that life was hard for coal miners and that coal operators or coal owners were always looking for the cheapest labor they could find. And they were always looking to try to crush any kind of unions that would arise to try to fix those terrible conditions. Um, so these these coal miners did talk to each other. There was movement. You know, uh, the early strike leaders uh, who led the the long strike in Colorado and then the later strike, they got their start in Pennsylvania uh, and then moved out west as as industrialization moved out west. So the people moved around and they knew each other and they talked to each other and uh, they knew what was going on elsewhere. But they didn't always overlap because of their uh uh, unique uh, labor conditions and who they were buying and selling to. What made the 1927 Columbine massacre different 
from the 1914 Ludlow incident. <laughs> okay, <laughs> which since it's the title of the book, it's probably you know important to 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 talk about that. the 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 Ludlow massacre. Um, while it's not in every textbook, it's in a lot of textbooks. And uh, just to to recap there, I mean, the, the long strike actually in Colorado began in 1910 uh, up in the northern fields, which is around Denver and Boulder. Um, and it, it was fought for two years before it moved into Colorado's southern fields in 1913. And most histories cover that like and and at most a chapter and then they'll move on to the 1913-14 strike as if it were this independent standalone strike uh, which is not the case because the leaders were the same uh there was a lot of movement between these two fields but when the strike moved uh to the southern colorado coal fields it turned into what uh thomas andrews and killing for coal uh and what scott martell uh, uh, in his book, I believe Blood Passions is the name of it. They've called it the most violent strike in American history. Um, it, it probably is the most violent strike in American history. I think, you know, a few people might argue with that. Uh, but in the course of the strike, 75 people were killed um, on both sides. Both sides were armed, uh, the, the strikers and the strike breakers. Uh, had Winchester 3030s, you know, um, all over the place. And so the violence, um, once the Southern uh, coal miners and their families joined the strike, they were evicted from their company housing and they were housed in tents provided by the Edina and mine workers. Uh, these tents had just brought in, been brought in from West Virginia used in a strike there by the United Mine Workers. So the the families lived in these tent colonies, and one of the tent colonies was Ludlow. Um, and it was violent. Uh, the men would leave during the day and go skirmish. The women and children would stay behind during the day. And uh, it, uh, the tent colony was situated near um, a train uh, stop where scabs, uh, strike breakers would get off. And so their job was to convince those scabs not to get off the plane, so, uh, off the train. So they might, you know, throw rocks at them or worse, trying to keep them from, uh, breaking the strike. And these tents also had basements, um, dug beneath them both because it was mighty cold out there. In fact, uh, in December of 1913, there was 45 inches of snow fell, uh, that's that can't be right. Forty, yeah, forty-five inches of snow. One of the biggest uh, snowstorms in Colorado history, and and here were these people, you know, living in tents with just you know wood stoves inside. So people needed basements for protection from bullets to keep their food safe, uh, to take protection from uh, all kinds of things. And on the morning of April twentieth, this ragtag group of uh, strike police out-of-work cowboys, mine guards, uh, National Guard, people have been cobbled together to fight this strike, started just firing uh, indiscriminately into this tent colony. And uh, not everybody got away. The next day, uh, uh, 11 children and two women were found dead in one of these makeshift basements. And that became known as the, as the Ludlow 
massacre, even though other people died that day. It was the the uh, shock of, of of dead women and children who had been uh, killed in the in the course of this strike, and it became a huge propaganda. Uh, event that was played up by the United Mine Workers and by progressives. And, you know, Woody Guthrie lady, you know, later wrote a song about it. So it became the basis of uh, congressional hearings and, and uh, you know, all kinds of, uh, uh, you know, publicity. But the reality is, uh, after that, the miners embarked on what was called a 10-day war and attacked other mining camps. And uh, even more violence, you know, unfolded until Woodrow Wilson, uh, at the behest of, of women in Denver, sent in federal troops, and everybody turned in their guns. And at last there was, you know, some some peace in the coal fields, but the United Mine Workers lost that strike. And uh, as, I'll, you know, as I argue in my book, uh, there are a lot of different factors that went on, but after that, the United Mine Workers changed, you know, fundamentally. Um, uh, John L. Lewis began his rise to power. Of course, this was the beginning of World War One, and uh, you know uh, Lewis saw that he, he wanted to portray the United Mine Workers as a patriotic uh, organization uh, that only wanted contracts for men uh, who could support their families, and he hated the idea of people associating uh, the United Mine Workers with these wild-eyed immigrants who would send their women and children off to do their work for him. And he went about to begin changing the, uh, you know, image and the functioning of the United Mine Workers. So by 1920, he becomes the president and he stays president till 1960. Um, so it's it's a fundamental uh, event in his uh, rise to power. But as far as Colorado coal mining goes, uh, the United Mine Workers essentially just pulled out of the state after this and decided to focus on other areas like Pennsylvania, you know, where uh, th- there were there was more coal and they already had a presence. So by the time the 1927-1928 uh, strike began, the United Mine Workers was pretty much dead, and the but the conditions were were pretty much the same. And the absence of the United Mine Workers uh, allowed the industrial workers of the world to come in and begin organizing. And part of their organizing was against the UMW and Lewis, who they saw as dictatorial and uh, ineffective. And, uh, and uh, you know, they'd come in and, and replace the local strike leadership from the long strike with their own out-of-state, uh, you know, lackeys, uh, so it, in, in many ways, it laid the groundwork for the later strike. How are the 1930s New Deal labor policies, especially up to the 1980s, important for your history trajectory? I, I think one of the that's that's an interesting question. And I think really that's that's probably at the heart of what surprised me most when I did this research Um you know, I, I really wanted to know more about Josephine Roach um, because it, it, she was such a strong, interesting, unusual figure. Um, so, you know, she's, like I said, probably the only woman who ever ran a coal company. And after the Columbine massacre, she became extremely involved in the company. And uh, she actually invited the United mine workers to come in and uh, she organized a contract between the Rocky Mountain Fuel Company, her company, and the United Mine Workers, which took effect 
September 1st, 1928. And so one of my questions was, if the Wobblies led the strike, why did the UMW get the contract? You know, um, and so what I came to understand was that she saw this as a way to get rid of the radicals, you know, and she could bring in somebody who was more conservative in her view. Um, and so this particular uh, strike led to a lifelong uh, personal and professional collaboration between Josephine Roach and John L. Lewis and the United Mine Workers, um, so much so that her personal attorney uh, uh, Edward Costigan went on to get elected U.S. Senator from Colorado in 1930. Um, and Josephine Roach uh, ran actually for first woman to run for governor in Colorado. And she didn't win, but she did come to the attention of uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt. And of course, she was part of this maternalist generation of women. She was already friends with Frances Perkins. Uh, she was already, she already knew Roosevelt from her earlier days in New York when she was getting her master's degree in Columbia. So in 1935, she was, she was appointed under secretary of the treasury, uh, in the new deal, a position she held, uh, for several years. She sat on the committee, uh, uh, Frances Perkins put her on the committee that helped craft social security. Um, she was put in charge of a committee to try to come up with a better delivery system for, uh, healthcare, you know, for the, for the country. So what I came to realize is that she and Lewis played a huge role in crafting the labor policies that emerged in the 1930s. And it, 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 you know, brought home to me how those policies were, were, even though they were, they seemed to be radical at the time, they were actually quite conservative, you know, because, because it, uh, the idea was, you know, you will uh, get contracts with established unions like the United Mine Workers, who all they're really asking for, all they're asking for is a contract and, and better wages and better working conditions. Unlike the Wobblies who, you know, they wanted to change the world. They they wanted the whole social order to to change, and that was just too scary. So a lot of New Deal policies are driven by this fear of radicalism, and uh, like it or not, those are the policies that we still have today, and they're old and they're creaky, and they were never ideal even when they were made, and they're even worse now uh, because employers have figured out how to exploit them and work around them, and uh, so. You know, a lot of historians focus on how the New Deal established the seeds of sort of the crisis of organized labor today. And sometimes they kind of forget to look at, well, how did those policies and, and laws get formed in the first place? And my book examines how those came to be. Define for your audience what you mean by public memory and how forgetting the Columbine massacre can help historians. Well, I don't think forgetting the Columbine massacre can help historians. I want them to remember it. Um, so, so I, you know, I started doing research um, on this topic, and you know, at first I was just doing my standard research of what happened, who was involved, all this kind of stuff. And then, as a history teacher, as somebody who's been teaching history most of my life, my big questions had to do with why isn't this better known. Um, and so then I started looking into to ideas of, of 
of history involving public memory, but also public forgetting. Um, so, so some definitions of public memory, um, you know, if, if you look them up, it have it have it has to do with the stories, you know, that circulate in communities where people tell each other. Uh, stories about what happened, and that very definitely happened in Colorado's coal community. And as I cover in my book, a lot of what the people in Colorado who mine coal and their families and their kids, a lot of what they think they remember, they kind of don't remember. Um, they all read um, the 1942 Baron Bashore book, Out of the Depths, and a lot of them internalized that book so much that it sort of became their reality. But I also grew up in a in a family uh, of storytellers, you know, the, the a Southern, you know, not always the best educated people. And that's what happened for entertainment. You know, you sit around and you tell stories. And uh, like my dad always said, he would, he, he's dead. He would just die if he heard me talking here. But he always said, every story either needs a point or a punchline, you know? Um, and, uh, he he would be appalled at, at just I'm sort of drifting here, but these oral community stories they they tell the same stories and then they change over time, but then they become this this uh, public memory. But then I started looking at it, and, and it also involves public forgetting too. And why is it that the people who who fought and participated in this coal strike, why did they forget it? And then also, who else helps shape public memory? You know, it can be done through monuments and memorials, but it can also be done through the ways the stories are shaped as events are unfolding. Uh, Like Josephine Roach and, and John L. Lewis, too, were masters of the press release, and they were able to uh, get their version of events out in the press uh way more successfully, obviously, than other people. And that also helped form a public memory among, you know, the the well-educated people who were reading newspapers at the time. And then those stories eventually make it into to textbook narratives. So the idea of public near, of memory very much has to do with history itself uh, and narratives and what gets remembered and what gets forgotten. And you incorporate gender studies into your book. How so? Well, you know, gender studies is a is a pretty loose term, you know, these days. And I'm certainly no gender studies scholar by a long shot. Um, but what eventually, it, well, I mean, what what initially uh, attracted me to this topic was Josephine Roach, because I wanted to know more about her as a woman. And then as I got into the strike, I wanted to know more about how the strike was fought and how um, women played a role in it, and and boy did they, just as they did in the in the long strike with the Ludlow massacre, and so I looked at this idea of how men and women and those relationships were portrayed over time, um, especially when it came to um, labor conflicts. You know, like a like I mentioned earlier, John L. Lewis was just horrified uh, about the Ludlow massacre because. You know, he wanted the women and children there to be nothing but victims. You know, and if you look at the Ludlow Monument that was uh, hurriedly erected in 1918, I I argue, you know, to to change the memories of Ludlow. You look at that uh, statue, and it's like a big, strong man standing there in work clothes, and then off to the side is this cowering 
woman with her with her completely exposed and beautifully shaped leg, you know, wearing Grecian or Roman type, you know, robes hovering over this child. Well, that definitely sends a message. Um, but that was not what was happening with men, women, and children uh, during either that long strike or during the 27-28 strike, where women were key participants uh, in this factor. So I, I look over time at how these events were portrayed and, you know, take them all the way up into the 40s and 50s and 60s, where, you know, during World War II and especially during the Red Scare that followed uh, World War II, um, uh, traditional families with a with a with a dad red you know who earned the living and the mom who stayed at home and the boy and the girl and the dog and the cat that came to be seen as really american you know and anything other than that became seen as suspect and that sort of version of events came to take over people's perception of labor as well and and uh so earlier interpretations of what labor conflicts had been like began to be just sort of over overlooked, you know, until they were sort of rediscovered in the 1960s and 70s. Um, just how important uh, entire uh, families were to these conflicts and not just led by men. Who are the three main individuals that you highlight in this book? Um, I chose to do sort of a, a well, sort of a limited triple biography uh, because I wanted to express three different viewpoints and I wanted to follow them over time. So Josephine Roach is one of the characters. Um, she uh, was this uh, smart, privileged woman, part of this maternalist generation. She went to uh, uh, Vassar, graduated from Columbia in 1910 very educated. And then she inherited half of the Rocky Mountain Fuel Company from her father. And then she went on to have this um, career, you know, in the federal government. And then later at the United, United Mine Workers uh, as as the right-hand uh, woman besides, besides John L. Lewis. So because she was the owner of the coal mine where the Columbine massacre took place, she's one of the characters. And another one uh, is... Uh, Powers Hapgood, and he came to work for Roach four months after the contract uh, between Rocky Mountain Fuel Company and the United Mine Workers. And I chose him because, boy, oh boy, did he leave records. Uh, he's sort of like the Forrest Gump of, uh, you know, labor history, because he also came from a privileged background, uh, went to Harvard, and he wrote, wrote, wrote. He probably wrote six or seven letters a day, and they're all uh, in the archives, you know, at, at Indiana University. And so for me, it was it was trying to understand what he saw in Roach and the Rocky Mountain Fuel Company and this new contract, because that helped me place the entire strike in a wider context of, uh, of a theme uh, industrial democracy that that was uh, the dominant theme of labor relations up until the end of World War II. Uh, and then A.S. Embry, uh, I chose him because he was the leader of a strike. So I wanted to have three different voices um, that, that, that overlapped, uh, but that 
you know, different causes led them to to be in Colorado, and then their lives obviously changed after the strike too. So it gave me a way to to trace um, these I, this idea of industrial democracy over a large uh, a long swath of time, almost a hundred years from the late eighteen hundreds until the nineteen eighties. And the theme of industrial democracy is that your emphasis? And is it a part of your thesis? And yeah, also, what is your thesis? Well, there you go. Um, I the uh, I should have an elevator pitch version of what my thesis is. Um, my, my I guess my overall thesis is that uh, this strike really influenced labor policies. Um, a lot, and that's why we should know about it. And that what we this this strike um, embodied uh, the turmoil that helped lead to uh, the policies that were labor and that later enacted in the New Deal. That it wasn't policymakers or strong leaders that brought these laws about. It was the turmoil from the workers themselves. Um, and the reason I chose industrial democracy as a theme is because it, it started in the in the teens, you know, during World War One, and it was on everyone's lips, you know, all throughout the 1920s and the 30s and the 40s. And so everybody uh, who was involved with any kind of labor policy, they all said that they uh, wanted to use industrial democracy as their guiding light. But there was many different definitions of industrial democracy as there were people who said that they wanted to enact it. Um, and and so it it provided a mechanism to explore what those different definitions were and what they meant to these different people. You know, for example, Josephine Roach was a progressive, um, and she very much saw industrial democracy through the lens of enlightened employers and scientific management. You know, and she just saw that a con- she believed that a contract with the United Mine Workers was was the epitome of of enlightened management and scientific, you know, uh, uh, ways to run your company. So she was pro mechanization. Uh, she thought that, you know, work, uh, unions made for better, uh, worker, uh, uh, management relationships as long as of course she was in charge and was the manager. Um, and then Powers Habgood uh, believed more in the sanctity of the contract. He was more of a, uh, uh, an uh, American Federation of Labor kind of guy. Um, and so, you know, more of a bread and butter, let's just look at the working conditions and the pay and stuff like that, and the contract's going to fix everything. Whereas A.S. Embry is a wobbly. He didn't believe in contracts, you know, because he thought that they weren't worth very much. He thought that all of society should be reordered and that workers should run the world. So they all said they believed in industrial democracy, but they had three different definitions of what industrial democracy was. And what about big business in your book? You write a lot about labor activism, but there is there an opposing viewpoint that you wrote or researched? Well, if in this period, um, you know, Josephine Roach was a was a progressive, and so she arose from the progressive uh, abhorrence to big business. You know, the the 
trust buster era. So to her big business, that's why she was so obsessed with Rockefeller, you know? So, so John D. Rockefeller Jr. was the one who ran the Colorado Fuel and Iron Company in Southern Colorado. But the progressives had absolutely uh, demonized uh, Jr.'s father, John D. Rockefeller, who who started Standard Oil, you know, so much that Ida Tarbell had, you know, written the expose uh, about his unethical and bloodthirsty, you know, uh, business practices. And Teddy Roosevelt, uh, seeing that, picked Standard Oil as the first uh, company to go after to try to break up with antitrust. And most coal companies, um, especially before World War II, were small operations. And so there were a few big corporations, but but you don't really see the rise of, of you see the beginnings, you know, of these. So, so the progressives saw the big corporations of the late 1800s, the early 1900s that they wanted to break up. Um, but big business does to some extent get broken up, but yet it reforms during World War II. And so you have these massive corporations that walk away from World War II. And then the whole, uh, you know, arrangement toward labor and corporations changes after that. Um, And even the relationship between United Mine Workers and corporations change. Because, you know, one of the things I show in my book was that uh, Josephine Roach and John L. Lewis really sour on uh, on uh, FDR around 37. And they decide that he can't be trusted, the Democrats can't be trusted, they don't trust government, and that they're just going to kind of have to go off and do their own thing. And uh, so, you know, after the war, uh, they tie the retirement and pension fund to getting along with the big coal companies. Because the big coal companies are the ones that are that are funding uh, the health care and the pension funds. So so those things change over time. And what I also noticed, too, was after World War Two, you just don't see the term industrial democracy anymore. Um, It's it's lost its uh, power to drive public debates. Those debates just aren't happening anymore. So not really. Am I looking at, at corporations? Um, but I'm more looking at the role that organized labor ended up having with corporations over time. The Lewis FDR split, did that change things for coal reformers? It sure did. <laughs> yes, it did. Um, the 37 split um, blew up the CIO. Uh, the you know committee and then Congress on Industrial uh, Organization, which Lewis had essentially cobbled together in the 1930s, and he ends up leaving in 1940. Um, and so this split between him and Roosevelt, uh, it it drove Roach out. Uh, it drove a lot of former progressives out. Um, it it really brought it. And 37, you really see an end to the New Deal. Uh, because you get a, a, a new coalition of Southern politicians and, and Republicans who who effectively start killing any kind of New Deal organization. And it uh, changed uh, Lewis's leadership in the CIO because the UMW had, had been the main leader 
of the CIO. So when he breaks with Roosevelt, it's going to change the leadership of the CIO, and it's going to change the leadership uh, direction that Lewis takes with the United Mine Workers, which is to to essentially, instead of uh, forming coalitions with other unions like, you know, autos or steel or whatever, convince Lewis that he really just needs to do his own thing with the mine workers. Um, and then eventually that he's going to need to do his own, own thing with the coal operators and not even uh, with the workers themselves. So it definitely changes things. And what was the white slavery hysteria about? <laughs> so I, I use white slavery um, in my, in my initial Josephine Roach chapter to to try to explain the twin impulses of progressivism that Roach exhibited her entire life. And those twin impulses are social reform and social control. So white slavery was absolutely a mania that that peaked uh, from around 1906, 7, till about the, the onset of World War I about 1914. And it was this idea that all kinds of uh, women were being duped into becoming prostitutes, you know, and it, so much so that it led to uh, federal laws, you know, that, that forbade uh, transporting women across uh, state lines for immoral purposes and stuff like that. But the reason I, I put it in the book is to it helps illustrate Josephine Roach's background and how she thought about the world and how she approached the idea of what government should and shouldn't do. And that, yes, she believed in social reform, but most of the um, actions that she was involved with when she was Denver's first lady cop as inspector of amusements, most of those actions were not democratic at all. Um, and they were very, you know, president, uh, prejudicial, even though it was called white slavery. Uh, all the, all the articles I found in her, uh, archival collection, the only women ever arrested seemed to be black, you know? So it was very highly charged on race and gender and social order and sex. And, uh, it very much had to do with her worldview that, that, were twin sides of the same coin, social reform and social control. In what ways then also was Denver as an area part of the greater Midwest and Chicago before and during the coal strike? Um, there have always been strong ties between Denver and uh, Chicago. Um, they both had extremely strong progressive movements. Um they they were um, tied together by railroad, by intellectual causes, uh, the industrial workers of the world. Uh, the uh, were eventually headquartered in Chicago, but the Western Federation of Miners was eventually headquartered in Denver. Um, so there's a lot of back and forth there. A lot of Midwesterners uh, who who would move from the farm to the big city would either move to Chicago or or Denver. You know, so there was a lot of intellectual cross uh, pollination, and um, you know, just just people knew each other, and they spoke a lot of the same languages, and uh, they had a real uh, propensity for reform. You know, populism, uh, gold and silver questions, and and uh, things like that.
So there was that connection as well. Did KKK politicians prove some threat to progressives? Yes. Well, by the time that, if, if you look at the Ku Klux Klan, you know, not the original Klan that arose after, you know, the Civil War, but the, the Klan that arose around 1915, um, the, the progressivism, you know, people argue about when it dies out. It, most folks say it pretty much was dead by the end of, of World War one, you know, and the, that's when the Klan arose. Um, so they they didn't directly exist at the same time. You know, progressives came before the Klan, but the Klan, its strength was in the early 20s from, you know, around 22 to about 25. Uh, but the Klan played a huge role in this uh, 1927, 1928 strike. Um uh, even though technically it was supposed to have died out around 25 and it was far from dead. It was very much a part of what led to the strike and the conflict. In fact, the um, strike police were probably all Klan members that had been chosen uh, to reward them for their service in the Klan. And so they had probably already had conflicts with most of these coal miners who were um, often immigrants. A lot of them uh, had just come up from Mexico. Uh, a lot of them were Catholic. So, the, the you know, this was during Prohibition. And these uh, Klan members had been chosen as this sort of honorary Prohibition police, but they certainly did not apply their Prohibition enforcement equally. You know, they, they especially went after the people who uh, they didn't like, uh, which happened to be immigrants, Catholics, brown and black people, you know, poor people. So it was a it was a huge factor. Rockefeller, CF, and I. What was it? And because you've mentioned Rockefeller many different times, why is it so uh, essential to your coal history? Well, so you know the original. Well, the the Rockefeller John D. Rockefeller Sr. Um, was a pivotal figure, obviously, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, and especially uh, to ideas of progressivism and corporate control and how, you know, anti-monopoly practices that monopolies should be broken up. Uh, It was key to Roosevelt's uh, presidency and also to his, when he ran as a progressive you know, for president as a third party candidate, which Josephine Roach and all of her friends uh, heartily supported. So when her son comes out to Colorado, John D. Rockefeller, you know, Jr., and he is the main stockholder in Colorado Fuel and Iron out of um, Pueblo, the, a lot of them uh, seek to transfer that sort of boogeyman quality to, to junior. Um, and so Rockefeller senior becomes a huge, uh, historical figure in his own right after the Ludlow massacre, when there are congressional hearings held to find out how such a horrible thing could happen. So, you know, Roosevelt's a huge figure that junior, uh, throughout this era. And after, uh, the 1927, 1928 Colorado coal strike, um, as Jonathan Reese has shown, uh, Rockefeller pretty much lost interest in coal altogether, you know, and, and just said, this is a, I can't make any money here. This is a violent, dirty business. And he just moved on 
to, uh, you know, work on other projects like Rockefeller Center, you know, 30 Rock, and uh, restoring Williamsburg and the Rockefeller, you know, corporation. So he began reinventing himself. But but Josephine Roche still wanted to use him sort of as a narrative foil about what was wrong with the coal industry. So he, he you know, and after the, after the Ludlow massacre after the long strike, he uh, brought in Mackenzie King from Canada to to craft what was known as the Rockefeller plan, which was an employee representation plan and what other people would just call a company union. So he he created this. Um, it it kept the United Mine Workers out, but it became also the basis for a lot of labor organization in the 1920s. Um, so it was it was a really influential plan, and it was obviously hated by organized labor because it wasn't organized labor. You know, it was it was a union that was organized by the company that was called the Rockefeller Plan. So the Rockefellers are all over this, even though they didn't have anything to do with the 1927-1928 strike. But at the time, the press acted as if they did, which kind of let Roach, well, it totally let Roach and her buddies off the hook. And it's still, it, and it let him off the hook until this book. Can you give your audience a description of the Wobblies? Sure. The Wobblies are easy to love. You know, um, they started in 1905 when uh, Big Bill Haywood from the Western Federation of Miners brought together a bunch of. Uh, socialists and all kinds of uh, social reformers to come up um, to try to form a, 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 a group of unions that might compete with the American Federation of Labor. Um, and they were different from the start. They uh, started, you know, mostly with Western workers, although they certainly spread nationwide and worldwide. And uh their, their opening sentence is the working class and the employing class have nothing in common. <laughs> you know, so it, it, it just laid the cards out right there from the beginning and, and said, you know, we endeavored to uh, change the system. And so people were terrified of the Wobblies. And they uh, organized among new immigrants, whereas the American Federation of Labor mostly uh, organized with native-born. They, they uh, organized... Uh, they tried to organize everybody, you know, uh, from waitresses to, you know, uh, migrant farm workers to, you know, coal miners. Uh, the idea was to try to organize everybody under this common banner, uh, which was very different from the uh, American Federation of Labor, which was very much focused on skilled uh, labor. Uh, that did, you know, like one specific thing, you know, cigar rollers. Samuel Gompers, who was head of the American Federation of, of, of Labor, came up through the Cigar Rollers Union, you know, so that's, that's pretty specific. So they were seen as very different. Um, and that came back to really bite uh, the Wobblies, especially during uh, World War One, because they were seen as uh, radical and unpatriotic and uh, people in the United States panicked because they associated them with the Mexican Revolution and the Russian Revolution and every other kind of revolution. And uh, they were seen as wild-eyed revolutionaries. And most textbooks argue that they were, you know, stamped out in World War I. Um, they often spread their message through mass meetings, um, a, lot of, a lot of singing. They sang a lot uh, through artwork 
through, uh, you know, means that were, uh, you know, more geared to people who might not be the world's best readers, you know? Um, so they were, they were different. Mother Jones and Elizabeth Flynn, they inspired militant women strikers. How and why? <laughs> well, Mother Jones, uh, is one of the most interesting figures in American history. And I urge everybody to read Elliot Gorn's book, biography of her. She's just incredible. Um, she was fearless, absolutely fearless. But I guess after losing your, you know, entire family to disease, there's nothing to hold you back. Um, but she was, she was key to organizing coal miners, not, not, uh, just coal miners, but also coal miners. So during the long strike, she was there most of the time. Uh, and she she was a powerful speaker. She was a really great leader. She really inspired the men, but also the women, the children. And she was out there on the front lines. And uh, uh, Flynn followed her example. She was a, a young girl uh, in New York City, and she you know saw what Mother Jones was up to, and she learned to do that fiery you know, speaking atop of soapboxes. And, you know, she went off and helped organize uh, uh, miners in Masabi, up, uh, Masabi Range up in Minnesota. And uh, she, she also was an organizer. And when the strike, the 27-28 strike began, um, she had given up that life mostly. And she had gone on to uh, found, she, she was a, an original founder of uh the American Civil Liberties Union. And, and so she decided that, you know, times had changed and probably more could be done in uh, uh, boardrooms and through legal actions than through whipping up people on soapboxes. But A.S. Embry uh, convinced her to come out to Colorado and speak, and she did. She, you know, whipped the crowds up. So it was part of the tradition of women being militant and children, women and children being militant uh, participants, not bystanders in the strike. So they were the leaders. In your readings, did you come upon a favorite headline or newspaper story that appeared about the Colorado coal strikes? And what could we maybe learn from it? My my favorite he- headlines, and there, there are quite a few of them, they all had to do with Amazons. <laughs> so the newspapers got obsessed with women, uh, and their involvement in the strike, and they kept calling them Amazons, you know. So, so uh, all my all the headlines that had Amazons in them are my favorites because I I just think that's such a f- interesting term to think about, uh, you know, and and how they're throwing this term around about all these Amazons leading all these strikers. So, you know, they're 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 not hard to find. I I even found one from you know the New York Times, which surprised me, but they were just as sensational as all the local newspapers were about uh, labeling any of these women Amazons. So, yep, I I like those a lot. What about slogans? Are there any slogans that have resonance today, catchphrases that relate to the coal strikers in Colorado? Well, absolutely. You know, I mean, the, it's the Wobblies came up with the term solidarity you know, and, uh, it's, it had, you know, it still resonates and it's still, you know, uh, resonated in, uh, uh, Poland, you know, the solidarity movement. So I'd, I'd say that solidarity, solidarity forever, um, is still, uh, a term used in labor. 
Um, and one of the leading wobblies was Joe Hill, who was executed in uh, Utah, I believe 1915. I, I think it's 1915. And, you know, one of the posters that the wobblies always uh, would would uh, put together would show Joe Hill. And then the, uh, below that would say, don't mourn, organize. You know, those were supposedly his last words, don't mourn, organize. Um, so between solidarity forever and don't mourn, organize, I think I think the wobblies did all right. They, they came up with some slogans that still work, you know. Uh, and of course, they stole the main slogan from uh, way back from the Knights of Labor, which is an injury to one is an injury to all. You know, so it's it's those slogans still work. Were there students at coal camps that were forced into child labor? No, <laughs> no. Uh, even though child labor was not, so, so one of the Colorado progressives that Roach um, associated with was uh, a guy named Edward Keating, who had been editor of the Rocky Mountain News, but then he went on as a representative. And he helped pass the Keating Owens Act, which um, tried to outlaw labor, you know, in the, in the progressive era and the Supreme court held it was unconstitutional. So a lot of the strike leaders who, who came to Colorado in the teens, a lot of those, uh, had, had started work in the coal mines when they, especially, I mean, obviously boys had started as breaker boys as early as when they were eight or nine or 10 years old. But by the time of the late twenties, kids weren't working. They were, they were in school. You know, so so uh, even though it wasn't technically illegal, kids were not working in the mines, but they were joining the junior wobblies and, uh, you know, leading their own walkouts and strikes. And I even found uh, an oral history where a guy described being part of the junior wobblies where they would go put on plays in Denver uh, to try to raise money for the strike. So they were involved, but not as workers. And the B team, this B team that visited the USSR um, tell us more about that B team, and then also tell us about beat labor migrants from Eastern Europe. Okay, so the I, the the B team that's that's sort of getting down into some details here. Um, Powers Hapgood, who's one of the um, you know what I think my earpods just okay. Um, Powers Hapgood. Um, uh, one of the reasons I, I included him in the book is in the 1920s, he worked with um, John Brophy out of Pennsylvania. And in fact, they helped lead the biggest strike in Pennsylvania history, coal strike in, in Pennsylvania history. He worked with them and, and they started a movement called Save the Union. And they worked to try to um, defeat John L. Lewis. And Lewis attacked Brophy through Hapgood. He couldn't attack Brophy directly because he was, you know, unimpeachable character. But Hapgood was easy to attack. He hung out with everybody, you know, radicals and everybody. So, so Lewis accused Hapgood of, and sort of subterraneously or whatever, uh, inviting communists into the United Mine Workers. So. Lewis was on this uh, Red Scare campaign in the mid-20s, 
And this was an era when all kinds of people were going to the Soviet Union, you know, uh, to see what this this new workers uh, group, you know, this new workers country was looking like. So there had been a delegation, a a a a, a plan an A group, a delegation that had been planned to go visit the Soviet Union and to see what life was like for workers there. But when Lewis was red-baiting Hapgood, at the same time, he also denounced this um, labor delegation, this A-team, to to visit the Soviet Union. And so this B-team formed. And Brophy was part of it, John Brophy, uh, Habgood's mentor. And then this guy, Frank Palmer, was part of it. Rex Tugwell, who went on to work uh, in the Brains Trust with FDR, he went. So it was a really interesting group. And they went over there for quite a long time. You know, they visited with uh, Hapgood, who had who had uh, escaped to Russia after the uh, uh, he was convicted in the wobbly trials. Um, they visited with Trotsky before he was uh, right before he was run out and Stalin took over. So it was a really sort of interesting time. But this B team, uh, Hapgood was involved with it. And then this guy, Frank Palmer came back. And even though he wasn't a wobbly, he ended up being a, a pretty strong leader for the 2728 strike. Uh, so it ended up having a, a, a pretty important uh, impact on the Colorado strike and other strikes as well. Now, also, what about the striking police? Um, were they resisting for different reasons? And is there any merit to their killings of strikers? There is no merit. To them kill- no, no, there's no merit to that at all. The The strike police, um, I you know, I go into detail on the on the Colorado politics of the 1920s. And, and Colorado's always been a cheapskate state. Um, in the, you know, in the long strike, in this strike, if they'd ever had any money to do a professional job, you know, maybe things might have gone better. But um, the governor, uh, uh, a guy named Billy Adams, when he took over, he was a physical conservative for sure. And he stripped the the state budget down to the bone. And the only way to fight a strike would be back then to, to, they didn't do, Colorado never does deficit spending. A lot of states don't have any deficit spending. So if you wanted a strike police force, you had to pay for it. And you had to figure out how you were going to pay for it, either with special bonds or, you know, trying to figure out some, some way to raise special money. So he was trying to figure out a way to get some kind of strike police without really having to pay them. And he dipped into what had been this sort of honorary uh, Ku Klux Klan prohibition police force uh, because they were there and the price was right. And that ended up being the strike police. And absolutely, as soon as they entered the scene, things got violent. So uh, probably wouldn't have happened without them, uh, without their involvement. You mentioned Mexicans once before, but is there any way that Mexicans could have contributed more to the success of these coal mines? You know, Mexicans were a huge part of this strike. Uh, Both Mexicans from Mexico and then uh, people who self-identified as Spanish. So one of the, you asked earlier about one of the contrasts between the earlier uh, Ludlow strike and then this, this later strike in the, in the early teens in Colorado uh, during the long strike, um, there were at least 32 
uh, ethnicities identified among the strikers. And by 1927, you know, immigration slows to almost a trickle during World War one. And then in the 20s, Congress starts passing uh, restrictive legislation, including 1924 National Origins Act. So by the mid-20s, Congress has essentially cut off immigration. What Congress did not cut off was was people coming up from Mexico, because you had the Western agribusinesses who got in there and lobbied hard and said, hey, hey, don't, don't, forbid these folks from coming. So all kinds of businesses, especially agricultural businesses, were going down into Mexico uh, to get workers, and in Colorado especially to get beet workers. Um, And the beet workers actually went out on strike with uh, the coal miners, which, you know, that really struck terror in the hearts of, of, uh, you know, employers. But evidence, my evidence shows that at least half of the coal miners who went on strike during the strike uh, would today be identified as Latino, and so really the the uh, there were there were uh, Latino strike leaders, there were Latino strikers. Uh, they were crucial both in in all over Colorado, northern, southern, uh, western fields. They were crucial to the to the strike. And and what was the RMFC? That's the Rocky Mountain Fuel Company. That's Josephine Roach's company. Okay. And can you explain for the audience what the new generation of historians are that you mentioned? You talk about people like Ellen Schrecker and others. Um, and is your book a part of any kind of historiography, new or old? Uh, I, I mentioned historiography in the book because... I am exploring historiography, you know, why some things get remembered, why some things get forgotten. And so I mention new labor historians uh, who really aren't new anymore, right? You know, they, they're a post-World War II generation that arose in the 40s, 50s, 60s, uh, you know, even even through today. But, the, but, you know, new labor history is not new. You know, it's it's I mean, I'm old and I'm, I'm not a new labor historian uh, because those folks are like uh, either dead or in their 80s. So so new labor historians challenged the way history, especially labor history, had been written before uh, because pre sort of World War II, uh, most labor histories were written in the John R. Commons School, which is to look at institutional records and uh you know, government records, labor union records, and to, to largely, you know, look at strikes. Uh, this new labor uh, group, you know, David Montgomery, uh, Melvin Dubofsky, these these folks came along and uh, they looked at other records, you know. So they started looking at things like oral histories, uh, more ephemeral type things like the kinds of materials that the Wobblies had left behind. Um, and so the stories they told change and their viewpoints changed. And sometimes it wasn't strictly focused on strikes. Sometimes it, like the, the really famous uh, book that changed everything was E.P. Thompson, uh, the, you know, about the English working class where he didn't even, he, he just looked at, at, at workers as, as a culture instead of as, uh, you know, specific strikes. So, the reason I look at new labor is because a lot of what we think we know about the Wobblies came from uh, 
the influence are from new labor historians themselves. Like Melvin Dabosky wrote uh, the most you know, definitive so far, really, book about the Wobblies. And he went along with a lot of the periodization that came from Fred Thompson, uh, who was alive and still a Wobbly. And I look at how new labor historians were were sort of swept up in the romance of the Wobblies and might not have always been as accurate in their histories as they had hoped they were being. So um, a lot of it had, so I look at, at why the history of the Wobblies contributed to the forgetting the 1927-28 coal strike. You know, Roach definitely, Roach and John Lewis and New Deal folks, they definitely wanted it forgotten. Um, you know, but also historians who came along and looked at the in, at the Wobblies, they also wanted it forgotten uh, because it was infighting among the Wobblies that helped blow up its consequences, its wins. Uh, so all kinds of people came along who contributed to uh, a, a narrative that helped it be forgotten when it shouldn't be. Did technology and science change these coal mines? You studied mechanization. It absolutely did. Um, if you if you look at coal mining, uh, you know, in the so coal mining, you know, obviously takes off after the Civil War as the United States is becoming industrialized. And in this era in Colorado, most of the coal miners still worked underground with picks and shovels and dynamite and, and, and everything else. But it was becoming mechanized. And the more mechanized coal mining becomes, the less you need coal miners. And so uh, uh, Josephine Roach and John L. Lewis thought this was a good thing because they thought the more you mechanize, the safer it's going to be. And you won't need people underground who get, you know, crushed to death when they're cave-ins or who drown with floods or any of this kind of stuff. So the idea is, you know, you increase mechanization. Um, but as I, you know, show in the book, um, after World War II, as mechanization increases, like almost anything, you have unintended consequences. So an unintended consequence of, of increased mechanization was finer silica. And that led to more black lung. Uh, and so you had fewer older and sicker coal miners. And that's kind of where we are, you know, today, uh, where it's still... A, a, a dangerous job, but it's way more mechanized and you have fewer uh, coal miners. And by the way, today, most of today's coal miners are not represented by the UMW anymore either. They're mostly uh, not unionized. Would you say that you agree with the new left or new labor historians or no? <laughs> uh, yes and no. You know, I mean, I, I love the new left's emphasis on untold stories and uh, stories uh, from people who might have been overlooked. Um, I'm not very doctrinaire. I just try to look at what happened and, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm neither of, I'm sort of a fan of the Wobblies, but I'm not so much a fan of the Wobblies that, that I'm going to not look at evidence that makes them not look good, you know? Um, so Yes and no, but but generally yes, sure, because it involved, you know, 
using more and greater and more interesting sources and viewpoints and topics and all that kind of stuff. So yeah, the New Left uh, absolutely did an invaluable service to labor history. You bet. Let's talk about your research methods for a moment. Were the archival materials sufficient for you or were you still wanting for more direct sources? There's never enough material, (laughs) you know, there's always more, Um, you know, I, I obviously told the story I did because of the sources I can find, you know, Powers Habgood is not a typical coal miner, my goodness, but boy, did he leave lots of records. And, you know, it's the same for Josephine Roach. Most of the records she left, she obviously wants to make herself look good. Um, And so I'm sure she left a lot of sources out and a lot of sources I had to just sort of read between the lines to figure out what was really going on. And A.S. Embry, he said, I found different, uh, you know, sort of uh, mentions of, uh, you know, I wrote a biography, but I never found it. So when it came to Embry, I really had to dig around uh, in the Industrial Workers of the World archives. And those archives are dominated by Fred Thompson, who didn't like Embry. So, so, you know, I would have liked more sources from John L. Lewis, but he didn't leave any personal history sources. And the United Mine Workers sources, what, what, I'm sure there's stuff there that I that would have helped out a lot, but I had a hard time uh, digging around in those. It would have been great if the uh, corporate records for the Rocky Mountain Fuel Company were uh, truthful. I found, you know, lots of bank statements and, you know, uh, board uh, statements and, you know, uh, all, all that kind of stuff. But then you'd find other materials that absolutely contradicted what those official statements were making. Uh, so, you know, it would have been nice. Uh, it, yeah, you can always use more records. I would have liked more um, honest records um, about various New Deal policies and how they came about. But maybe they're somewhere, but I just don't know where. You know, so so you can always find more records. But then on the other hand, you can't write a, you know, 2000 page book either. So so a whole lot more ended up on the cutting room floor than ended up inside the pages of this book. So you got to stop somewhere. Alessandro Portelli in other oral histories. What impact did those oral histories have for you? And is that the only method that you were using? Portelli changed everything. Um, So I was in grad school and we read this book by Daniel James um, about uh, Dona Maria, who had uh, helped bring Juan Perón to power. But the book is more an exploration of oral history um, and sort of its pitfalls, right? And so reading that led me to Portelli, uh, who was just brilliant. And that helped me finally make sense of the conflicting oral histories that I've been reading. So, uh, you know, you you start with, you know, you read all these sources, and then you you hope they tell a story that makes sense. But they, they, often don't. And so I came across uh, a lot of oral histories uh, that had been collected in this oral history boom during the 
Carter administration from around 77 to 81. And you, you read the histories of people. And I, I was reading, so I'll focus on one specific history I was reading. So one of the six uh, striking coal miners who was killed during the Columbine massacre, his daughter was interviewed uh, in the late 70s. And so, of course, she was an old woman at the time, and she had been six years old when her dad was killed. And I was reading her oral history, and I'd never read an account like hers, which was, you know, her her father's back had been blown off. He had to be propped up in the coffin. And even then, he was he was sinking down really low. And and she said, and I heard that a a a man named Sherat walked up to him and shot him directly on both sides of his body, right? So I'm reading this, and I'm like, wait a minute. There was nobody named Sherat there. And then I started poking around because I'd read so much. But there was a guy named Sherat in the Longstrick from 1910 to 1914. And then that, after having read Portelli and, and Daniel James, I started thinking, what is going on here? Why is she mixing up names from the from the long strike to 1920, 27, 27, 28. Then I started looking at at that and uh, there there was this quote uh, by Portelli that, that became my mantra uh, that I started using uh, throughout the book. And I'll, I'll, just, I'll just read it to you. And he says, oral histories tell us not what people did, but what they wanted to do, what they believed they were doing, and what they now think they did. And so when I read that, it was like the the veil had been lifted. You know, all of a sudden I started reading all these oral histories in a different light. And in fact, those were the only primary sources from the workers that were available because nobody interviewed the workers in 27 or 28. So you look through that in the lens of, of memory and how histories are constructed through different voices and different memories. And it, it really shaped uh, the way this story came together. So that that did become the guiding principle for the book about memory and forgetting and how those uh, memories and get formed and, and how the things that we forget are also important too. Is there any new research being done on the 1927 to 1928 Colorado coal strike? Um, and do you see room for improvement? I don't think anybody else is researching it and there's always room for improvement, you know? So I think the thing I'm, the thing I was trying to uh, make clear about this particular book is that it's not just this particular strike, all kinds of strikes were going on during the twenties and early thirties. This is just one of them, you know, and the more we know about labor activism during this period, the more it will change the overall narrative of labor history. The thing that worries me and bothers me the most about labor history, especially in the textbooks that I taught, you know, most of my life is that it's always portrayed as, as like, you know, Roosevelt comes into office and, and he, he gifts the workers these laws, right? And he's like, gives them permission to, to form unions. And then they respond by forming all these unions. No, that's not how it happened. You know, workers were militant and guys like Roosevelt were scared to death. And that's why those laws were, 
enacted. It was worker militancy that brought the laws about, not the other way around. And the more we know about workers, the more we can uh, correct that. And it, you know, it'll help speak to our current moment too, about workers are pretty restless right now too, even though, you know, membership in, in, in unions is at a historic low, even, even now, but, but workers are more receptive to ideas of, of, uh, of organizing than they've been. And it's coming from the workers themselves. It's not coming from political leadership. It's coming from the workers. So the more stories we know about workers and how they've come together, um, I think the more it changes the narrative and helps people understand their own empowerment. Are there any new research interests for you um, outside of this topic? Um, What can the audience expect from you in the future? Well, as a retired teacher, I am very interested in the history of education reform. You know, reform is, again, it's one of those terms like industrial democracy. Everybody uses it, but they mean something different. And, you know, somebody as somebody who, you know, was a lifelong member of a, of a, of the, you know, National Education Association, I, I was, you know, really interested at the rise of, of charter schools and, uh, you know, Teach for America. And they're, they're just uh, sort of uh, high class scabs, you know. Um, and so I'm interested in the, the cloaking of the, of the language of reform and all the issues that swirl around that. So I, I think that's probably my next, the next thing I'm going to look at. And are you having any seminar? <clears throat> Sorry. Are you having any seminars or in-person events that people can attend? I have an event at the Boulder Bookstore in Colorado, uh, Tuesday, April 25th. I will be speaking in May at the Lafayette uh, library, uh, on a Saturday. I'm not sure which Saturday, if it's the first or second Saturday of the month. And, uh, I will go anywhere, anytime to speak to anybody (laughs) about this. So I'm hoping to line up some more stuff. The book isn't officially, uh, on the market until February 15th, although I can see that there are copies sort of, you know, dribbling out there at this point. Uh, but yeah, I, I enjoy public speaking. I love, you know, being out there and hearing what what's on people's minds. So uh, stay tuned. And do you have any final thoughts about the Colorado coal strike? I do. Buy my book and you'll find out all kinds of stuff that you never knew about that strike, but also how that strike fits into the bigger picture of labor history and also on how history itself is made. New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore, thank Lee Campbell-Hell, author of Remembering Ludlow But Forgetting the Columbine, the 1927 to 1928 Colorado coal strike. Her interview with us was great. We should also send appreciation to the University Press of Colorado. To hear more new podcast episodes, subscribe or visit the NBN website.